This is the College Football Impact on the CFP Podcast with your hosts, Cheppy, Wax, and Sully. College football knowledge dropping in three, two, one. Hey, 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 college football fans, happy Independence Day. No, 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 no. I, I haven't lost it. I'm not off my rocker yet. Um, this is not an old podcast. I'm not commemorating the important days of July 4th and June 19th. No, I'm talking independence with a TS at the end, not the NCE. Yeah, we're talking FBS independence, which Wax and I, we've covered the Power Five schools and conferences that contain those schools. But unfortunately, as of right now in 2022, that leaves out Notre Dame and BYU, which are two schools that I consider to be Power Five type schools. So we wanted to make sure we we got that in. And a plug here for the CFP podcast, we did release earlier this week our Notre Dame specific podcast and preview with Tim Priester from Irish Illustrated. And we also released our BYU specific preview podcast with Kevin Reynolds from the Salt Lake Tribune. So both of those are available where podcasts are available to you. So wherever you listen to us on the CFP podcast, make sure you check out those two. But today we're going to talk about not only Notre Dame and BYU again, but we're also going to get into the other five schools that are in this collection of teams. It's not officially a conference. And this is a collection of teams that's actually going to dwindle down from seven to four next year. So we'll talk about that. Wax, how you doing, man? I am doing great. It is uh, nearly nearly the end of July. It's still kind of hot. It still doesn't make you think about football. The weather doesn't, but it'll it'll be August here soon enough. And this is the last month until February that we don't have any college football in it. So it is kind of cause to celebrate going along with the Independence Day sort of theme that you touched on at the beginning. I don't know what it's like around you near Columbus, Ohio, but it's not kind of hot here in Michigan. It is damn hot. I was yes. walking a short trek to my daughters and I, our favorite deli place for lunch today, and my shiny dome was getting quite a scorching from that sun. So I had to make sure I got inside in a hurry. And even on my Walk It Off with Chappie segment today, I made specifically sure to try and find some shade. And fortunately, there was wind, maybe a little bit too much wind, but nonetheless, it's hot out there. And I feel for these Division One athletes who are going to have to put on all that padding and, and that gear and be going 110% as they gear up for week zero or week one, as it might be. But then again, they're the lucky ones. They're the benefactors of not only a great college education and tuition paid for and all the other benefits, but now NIL money as well, not to mention the notoriety and the connections that they make for being a part of this great sport. So enough of my rambling wax. Let's get right into conference realignment because it does pertain to some of these teams. So first of all, question to you, Notre Dame. It sounds like the Big Ten and the SEC and Notre Dame have all said, we're, we're good for right now. We're not looking at any further talks. We're not looking at further expansion anytime soon. But of course, that could easily just be really big window dressing, especially as it pertains to Notre Dame. So thinking in the future, and it might even be three, five, possibly even longer than that. But which conference do you think Notre Dame should go to? And where do you think they actually do go to? Well, I think the answer to both is the same. But before I say whether I think they should, I do think that there are some, certainly some advantages to being 
and independent. Some of it is, the big one is not having to share money with anybody else, bowl money, TV money, whatever. I know that Notre Dame has just put in a request for $75 million of TV money. I don't know if Notre Dame's name by itself without other members of a conference TV package is going to be able to get $75 million from, from a network. I know that the Notre Dame name still shines brightly, but with more and more teams coming out of the independent ranks and with Notre Dame uh, possibly having to, uh, I guess, I don't want to say dumb down its schedule, but it may find fewer partners with some of these other teams going to more uh, established leagues. I, I certainly think that they would in the long run be better off going to a league. And I think that league geographically and from a historical standpoint would be the Big Ten. They have a lot of the same mission academically as a lot of the Big Ten schools do. They have a rich history with Michigan State and Purdue and Michigan. They're playing Ohio State this year. It just it works from a travel perspective, certainly. And heck, they've got their rival USC now in the Big Ten. So they could, that, could, that could be a conference game, although there is something to be said for it being a national game where it's not really a conference uh, matchup for, for either one. But I think eventually, um, though the Big Ten has said we're good for now, I do think in a couple of years that this will be revisited and that they will round out at 20. And who the other three are going to be is up for anyone's uh, bet. But I do think Notre Dame will be one of the four when and if the Big Ten goes to 20. I agree. I think they should go to the Big Ten. I think it makes a lot of logical sense from a logistic standpoint, travel, geography, history, prearranged schedules. I mean, it, it seems to make perfect sense. But therein lies the problem, Wax, because whenever something seems to make sense, college football at least in the last three, four years, seems to have gone away from that. So I actually think Notre Dame will probably end up in the ACC because like I had said on a, a previous podcast, I think the ACC is going to make a big-time push to stay relevant and to keep all their teams in that league. And I think a big part of that would be Notre Dame. And I think the ACC would basically get on their knees to Notre Dame and say, we'll allow you to keep your NBC contract for the home games and then you can also be part of the ACC network for the away games. That way you're kind of getting that revenue. And if that means that the other ACC schools are pissed off, I don't think the ACC cares at this point because if I'm Commissioner Jim Phillips and if I'm some of the, the board of directors there, I'd go back to those schools and say, all right, you've got two options. We either bring in Notre Dame, which will help make our, our league even better, or we say no to Notre Dame and then this league will likely crumble because the ACC is – I don't want to say much better, but it's it's close to being much better with Notre Dame than they are certainly without and, and adding anybody else, even if it is from all the way across on the left coast there with some of those talks of a potential ACC Pac-12 alliance, which I don't think is a good idea, and I don't think it's going to happen anyway. So, yeah, I think Notre Dame should go to the Big Ten. I think they actually end up in the ACC, but we'll see how time plays that out. And, and I think to your point on the ACC – um, you make a good one because really in the current version of the ACC, if they did say, okay, if, if you members don't want Notre Dame to come in, then good luck finding a, I mean, Clemson, Florida State, Miami, Pittsburgh would probably all find homes because they have right. tradition and history on their side. But is, is Wake Forest really going to get to land somewhere good? North right. Carolina? I mean, some of these teams, I think right now, would love to just have the ACC 
become kind of relevant again. And the way that the Big Ten and the SEC have expanded, they've really been relegated to the back pages. So um, I think while some of them, if, if they were pissed, I think that, like you said, membership would say, you know what? You guys would be on your own and good luck for Syracuse or um, any of the other teams that struggle to really find a home because the SEC ain't taking you and the Big Ten probably isn't taking you. So so I do think that certainly would seem to be something in the ACC's favor if there is a third power conference. And if there is, then you may be right. Notre Dame may end up going there. Sure. All right. Well, speaking of another team that actually is going to a conference and it's locked in, BYU is going to the Big 12 next season. They start football play and I think all athletics in 2023, I believe July of 2023 is when they will officially become a member. How long do you think until BYU can legitimately look to win the Big 12 conference? Taking Texas and OU out of the equation there, how soon until BYU can be a contender to possibly win that new Big 12 conference, Wax? I think it would take them a little bit of time just because they have been dealing with a little bit of a different recruiting mindset than the teams that would currently be in the league, the Baylors, the Oklahoma States, the uh, TCUs. And we can't forget with Cincinnati and UCF and Houston coming in, um, you've got those other new, new members. None of those three are really slouches. So not only would they have to contend with the existing Big 12 members, but you've got the teams that are coming in with them that are also kind of geared up to win. So I would say that the way that Kalani Sataki has been upping the recruiting the last couple of years, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that they could contend maybe in three to four years as far as winning it. I don't think it's going to be in this next cycle of, of recruits of like four or five years because sure. – I do think you're going to have the established teams with their footprints. They're going to have to recruit the state of Texas. They're going to have to get a little bit out of their recruiting zone. And you got to remember, they're still going to have the um, the, the, the two-year mission that, that players are going to have to be on. So right. they have a little bit more roster churn than some of these other teams do. So it's a little more piecing things together for BYU on a year-to-year basis. So I think they will be competitive I mean, they're not going to go in next year and stink to join up. I think that they lose a lot of people this year. So you could be looking at a 500 season next season. But I think after that, once they get their feet under them and the schedules are kind of known for a while and they get used to more of a Midwest mentality, I think in three to four years, they could certainly be in the mix for the league title. I want to believe that it's going to be a little sooner than that. Now, you bring up a great point about recruiting. I think compared to UCF and Houston and Cincinnati, I think certainly UCF will have an edge in recruiting among those four new schools. And Cincinnati has gotten better. I mean, recruiting the state of Ohio, Luke Fickle is doing a great job there, keeping that in-state talent there. And he's also shown that he's done a pretty good job in the transfer portal. But then again, so has Gus Malzahn at UCF. So from a recruiting standpoint, I think BYU is a little bit behind the curve there, but I don't think it'll take long for them to kind of catch up. It's a unique situation out there in Provo anyway, and Sataki has been able to churn out 10-win, 9-win seasons quite consistently, and I think the edge that BYU has going in over those other schools, save for Cincinnati and what they did last year on their schedule, but BYU has proven that they can go 
out to places like Madison, Wisconsin and win. And they can go out to some of those Pac-12 schools. <clears throat> like we talked about, they were undefeated 5-0 and against the Pac-12 last season. Uh, they've also proven that they can hang with, uh, you know, schools like Notre Dame and um, other teams from the Big 12 that, that they've played with. And, and even some of those other group of five schools like Boise State. So BYU is consistently competitive. It's not like they're one of those teams where every now and then they'll have a great year and then they kind of tumble back down to a six-win team. Under Kalani Sataki, by and large, they've been a nine and ten win team and, and caliber of, of athletes, even though they may not have all the stars next to their name, but kind of like the Wake Forest model. They, they don't play guys right away, but they, they have them in the system for a little bit. They give them time to bulk up physically and mentally in terms of football IQ, and, and they come to play. So I can see BYU being competitive within the next three, four years, especially, like I said, once you remove Texas and Oklahoma out of there, I mean, save for Oklahoma State, who's been pretty darn consistent within the Big 12, but Baylor has kind of been up and down. I mean, Aranda's first year was not pretty. Last year, they looked really good. Uh, TCU has kind of dropped a little bit, and I think it's going to take a couple years for Sonny Dykes to get them back up to where Patterson had them. Um, But, you know, aside from that, I mean, even a school like Iowa State, who's gotten a lot of media love, they... I don't know that they've had a double-digit win season. They've never won 10. That's what everyone is waiting for Matt Campbell to get to 10, and then they can anoint him. Right. So, I mean, there you go. So, I mean, you look at just within the last four years, BYU has put not only in terms of wins and losses, but also like national rankings with statistics and the closeness of the games, even when they lose, when they happen to lose, it's not like they're getting blown out. So, I actually see BYU, this this being a great situation for them, and I wouldn't be shocked if they are one of those top two teams in the Big 12 and, and playing for the title game within the next four years, Wex. Yeah, that, that, that could certainly happen. And BYU and, and Notre Dame, the two things I will say for them is um, I loved growing up in the 70s and 80s because you had a bunch of independents. I mean, big names. You had Penn State. You had Syracuse. You had Miami. You had Florida State. They weren't always good, but – you could have these great matchups and they would almost seem like conference games because the teams were really good and they would play every, they would, a lot of them would play every year. And um, that, that whole, that whole thing, everyone just need because of TV, you need to be part of the conference money. You need to get more of the bowl payout so that you can join in all of that. Everyone feels the need to join a conference. So on one hand, I think the independence will go away at some point. I mean, it's down to four next year. I think at some point you'll see Army find a home and you'll see UMass and UConn. Maybe they'll form like a Big East that used to kind of be a football entity. All of those teams are located in that part of the country. So, um, but, but that would be sad if all of the independents go away because I right. do think there is a, a pretty nice tradition of Division One level independent football. Yeah, and I mean, speaking of that, not only is BYU joining the Big 12 next year, and we talked about Notre Dame, there's always been the the talk of them, should they or should they not join a conference, but Liberty and New Mexico State, who are current FBS independents, they join Conference USA next year, as CUSA has really tried to take, I don't want to say anybody that will apply, but I mean, they're also adding in brand new FBS teams or programs, Sam Houston State and Jacksonville State to join their league right away, right from Jump Street. So, I mean, after getting 
purged by the Sun Belt and almost left for dead, Conference USA is, is still trying to remain relevant. And, and two of the teams that they took are the Liberty Flames and the New Mexico State Aggies, who we'll get into a little bit more. Last thing before we get to our, our talk of transfers, because there were transfers in and out of these independent programs, Wax, Army and Navy set venues for the next five years. And you're actually the one who sent me this story when it came out because you and I are scheduling nerds and, and we love uh, kind of seeing what's going on, especially with this game. You and I have talked on air and off air about this is our favorite game to watch every season because of what these players, what these young men and women stand for. But over the next five years, the Army-Navy game, they'll be playing in Philly, Boston, D.C., Baltimore, and New York City. So my question to you, Wax, is, is there a city that's not there that, as you can think within your knowledge of American history, that you think it would be cool for the Army-Navy game to be played in whether it's from a historical standpoint or, you know, something that relates almost directly to the Army or Navy, aside from on campus, because I thought that was cool when they played in West Point two years ago during the COVID season. I would kind of like to see at least two years where it's a home and home where you play at Mikey Stadium in New York and then you play at uh, Memorial Stadium in Annapolis, Maryland. But aside from those venues, is there any place that you kind of think about and you're wondering it would be cool to see this game played there. Yeah, and, and 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 I agree with you. I wish they could do a home and home. That would be outstanding just to see the pageantry on the two uh, campuses the day of the game. That would have to be a, a game day special, certainly. Right. But, um, there aren't stadiums to currently house them, but I would love this game to be played at like Valley Forge or or somewhere like that. Yeah. Um, just because that was such an important battle. Uh, early right. on, George Washington, or somewhere like Gettysburg, where Abe Lincoln made his his address and all that stuff, and that was and uh, any of the historical Jamestown, Valley yeah. Forge, but you'd have to build a stadium, like a one-off stadium, to hold the game there. So, right. from an American history standpoint, I think that that would be one. From an actual realistic standpoint, um, I think it would actually be very cool to have it in a place that is a college campus, like say a Notre Dame stadium or an yeah. Ohio stadium or Michigan or somewhere like that, that has a hallowed tradition, but is still a college stadium. Yeah. I like that, especially Notre Dame, because those three programs used to be every year on the schedule, they were rivals. And especially in the forties and fifties, yes. you know, right after world war two, that was, I mean, everybody geared up for the Notre Dame Navy game, the Notre Dame Army game, and then, of course, the Army-Navy game. So I like that. I'm, I'm right with you. Like some of those historical spots within U.S. history, the only other places I thought of, but I, after I thought about it more, I don't know that I would like it because of the time zone difference. One would be San Diego. And I know that Navy and Notre Dame played, I think, one of the Shamrock Series games out there, and they brought spotlight to Fightertown, USA out there. And the military tradition that they've got in, in the San Diego Naval base. But then also Hawaii would be interesting for the Pearl Harbor aspect of it. But again, then you would have a game that is four or five hours. I can't remember the time zone difference there, but it's quite a deal later. A noon kickoff there would be kind of an odd time here. So, I mean, you could still make it work. But again, I know a lot of people who love to travel to that game, and that might be a crux within that as well. Plus, the, the new Hawaii football stadium is a little bit on the smaller side. I mean, it's, it's, right. it's relatively around the same size, maybe a little bit bigger than 
the on-campus stadiums for both Army and Navy, respectively. Uh, but when you're talking about how this game is is usually a sellout in places like Philadelphia and New York City and Washington, D.C. and Baltimore, to go to a smaller venue like that may not be the best interest for such a, uh, a spectacle for the sport. But I do like that idea of maybe playing it at Notre Dame Stadium. That would be cool. Well, and write it down. I will be at one of those next five venues. I'm going in the next five years. I have family in Philadelphia and in the New York City area and the D.C. area. So three of those cities are covered for family members. Well, please make sure that you contact me because that's on my bucket list. And I'm not talking. I don't want this to be something that I do after I retire. I want to do it within the next three to five years. So when the plans become more concrete, buddy, let me know. And uh, I'm going to be right there with you. So, all right, well, before we get into breaking down our predicted order of finish, and not even really finish, but just the records for these independent schools, let's talk transfer portal real quick, Wax. So of these independent schools, who are maybe a couple of transfers on offense or defense or both that stand out to you that um, are going to greatly help their new school? Um, as far as offense goes, I think you got to look at a pair of running backs. Uh, Christopher Brooks at BYU, who moves uh, from, from Cal to BYU. He's got the unenviable, unenviable job of taking over for Tyler Algier, who had a great, great season last year. But Brooks is that same type of physical runner. He likes contact. He seems to fit the BYU mentality. And I think he's going to have a pretty good season behind one of the best offensive lines in college football. I also... People aren't talking as much about this guy, but uh, Day-Day Hunter goes to Liberty from Hawaii, and he is is someone who should be able to give Liberty's offense a little bit of running punch because with Malik Willis gone, I think people are assuming, okay, they're going to have to kind of dial it back a little bit, not throw the ball so much, and he's a good guy to give the ball to because he can do a little bit of everything. On defense – um, the two guys I like are both in the secondary. Brandon Joseph, of course, is the big name from Northwestern. He's at Notre Dame now. Nice little replacement for Kyle Hamilton. And then BYU gets a kid from Vanderbilt, Gabe Judy Lally, who is going to be a starter. And he's a guy who's shown in his time at Vanderbilt, he's not afraid to hit. And BYU has a very physical secondary most years. So he's going to be able to fit in um, with, with, with the guys that are already there. Yep. I, I love those first two. Those are my first two I wrote down on offense. Brooks, I think, will fit in nicely at BYU. And depending on how their season goes, I think that if, if BYU is a 10 or more win team this year, it's going to be in large part not just to Jaron Hall, their quarterback, but Christopher Brooks, because you know he is going to be uh, potentially that missing piece that if Algier was back this year, I would put BYU probably in my preseason top 10. And that's not hyperbole. Uh, I like Dayday Hunter as well. He averaged 5.7 yards per carry at Hawaii, but he's also a good receiver out of the backfield. So he's kind of a, a jack of all trades. I would actually put him at that all-purpose position. So when when you and I like to do our preseason and our postseason honors, you know, you and I both kind of like that slash or that all-purpose back type player. And and Hunter is certainly somebody um, who I'd put down in the independence group. Another person to look out for is Taquan Roberson at UConn. He had a pretty good spring. He transfers over from Penn State. Uh, he got his feet wet a little bit last year when Sean Clifford went down in the Iowa game, and it looked like he was standing in wet cement against that Iowa defense, but there were a lot of quarterbacks who didn't show up 
because Iowa's defense was that suffocating last year. But they're they're high on him. And Jim Mora is a coach who I think is experienced enough. I don't want to say old enough, but experienced enough to command the respect of those players, but also still young enough or at least acts young enough to where he still relates to the college age uh, players. And he doesn't have to rely uh, on his long resume of wins and losses like a guy like Nick Saban or Kirk Ferentz or, you know, some of those other deans of college football to where you look at him and you say, I just don't see how they can relate to these players other than the fact that they know what they're talking about on the football field. I think Mora kind of toes that line there and keeps good balance. Uh, Defensively, yeah, Brandon Joseph I had. Uh, Another guy to look out for is is Marquez Bembry, who transfers from Kentucky, and he goes over to UConn as well and is somebody that is going to help set up that linebacker room and, and look pretty good. And anybody who comes from Mark Stoops, and his background, especially defensively, you know that they're going to add in, you know, some some quality plays there. Kentucky, Kentucky has been turning out linebackers for a while now, and he was just like the odd guy out. But I had him on my list of top ten. I had him at nine. One other defensive guy I like. He just got caught in a numbers crunch, but he's from Michigan. Andre Selden at New Mexico State. He was yep. a top fifty recruit at his position, and I really think that he's going to help Jerry kill, have some legitimacy, and we'll talk about it later. I think defensively, New Mexico State could be a real interesting team because they have some playmakers, and I think Andre Selden has some speed and some physicality that can allow them to do some things on the back end. Yep, I agree. And I know some people shy away from you know brand names, and they say, well, don't, don't buy into just because somebody transferred from Michigan that they're going to be anything. I mean – I think there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, if somebody is talented enough to where they can get recruited by a big time school like that and they're loaded with talent. So it may not be that this person fanned out because they couldn't cut it. It just could be like a numbers crunch, especially with as competitive as the transfer portal is now where you're not only competing with new recruits, but you're, you're, or, I'm sorry, I can't talk. You're competing with other guys coming in from the portal. And, you know, a guy like Andre Selden has a better chance to be a bigger fish in a relatively smaller pond and still uh, perform well and, and be somebody that catches the eyes of scouts as well as casual football fans. All right, Wax, well, let's go to what the people want to hear. How are, How do we see these teams finishing in terms of order of finish and if you want to give records you can but uh, let's hear for one through seven how are these seven independent schools going to finish from an overall win standpoint um i assume that we are going to have the top three probably the top four and then maybe our five through seven are a little bit different notre dame and byu are at the top of the heap notre dame will be the best team but they also have a difficult schedule um so they may not win the most, but I do think they'll be the best team. BYU is second. I think Army will be strong again this year. Um, and then Liberty will take a little bit of a step back, but still be good enough to be fourth because Hugh Freeze is a good coach and they do have some new bodies in from the portal. And then take your pick of five, six, and seven. All three new coaches, but names that people know. At New Mexico State with Jerry Kill, I have them fifth because of their defense. 
UConn with Jim Mora. I think that he's really hit the recruiting, um, hit the ground running recruiting and recently got a, a couple of, of big time recruits. And then UMass, just because I think they had the biggest hole to dig out of, um, I think that they will be last, but they also have some players in, in Don Brown, uh, who's the longtime Michigan DC. He's come over really for a second stint with UMass. So anything could happen with those five through seven, but I think that the, the top two and really top three are pretty much set with Notre Dame, BYU, and Army. Yep, and, and you're spot on. I, I did have the same top four. I have Notre Dame and BYU both going nine and three. Notre Dame, however, having more impressive wins because they have a more impressive schedule. I have Notre Dame going six and two against their power five opponents. BYU also at nine and three, but I have them just two and five against power five opponents. Uh, but again, you know, we talked about the competitive nature of BYU's schedule traditionally, um, and, and it pays off with how how well prepared they are. Army, I think, is good for another nine and three season. And interesting, Jeff Munkin is a couple of games away from having four 10 win seasons out of the last five, which is incredible considering it's a service academy playing an independent schedule. And that's not to knock the service academies. I mean, you know that I love them as much or more than anybody else, but to, to consistently win nine games a year at Army, especially with where they were when Jeff Munkin took over that Army program when they were getting dominated by Navy every year, uh, for him to kind of turn it around and be the, the dominant uh, of those two schools, at least within the last five years, is, is remarkable. Um, Liberty, I have fourth going seven and five. I have him going 0 and 4 against Power 5 competition. And again, I don't think it's just because of Malik Willis, but there's a lot of holes that they've got to plug there. And, you know, if, if they can get a good quarterback play, they did get Charlie Brewer from the transfer portal. And I'm not even going to count his time at Utah. I'm, I'm looking more at what he did at Baylor. I think he's a talented quarterback, but I think the better quarterback in that system is going to be Caden Salter to, to kind of run that Q3's RPO offense. So look out for him. And he was a Tennessee transfer, I think a four-star Various things didn't work out for him there. He transferred in actually last year, I think, um, in the fall. And so kind of was getting uh, his bearings last year. I think he played in five games, but I like the future of him at quarterback there. And then, yeah, uh, you and I have UMass and New Mexico State flip. So I have UMass, UConn, New Mexico State in that order based on head-to-head. -head. Uh, I do think that UMass defeats UConn. And, um, you know, all those schools go over against power five competition. But again, they're all basically starting from scratch. They're hitting the reset button. And I do like the hiring of all three of those coaches. Jerry Kill has taken programs at uh, the FCS level at the Mac and, and even a program like Minnesota and has done good things with them from the ground up. Uh, I think Jim Mora, we already talked about him earlier. And then, yeah, Don Brown, he... I can't remember what his record was. I think he was something like 49 and 10 or something like that in five seasons as UMass's coach when they were in the FCS level and, you know, really established himself as a guy who knows football and saved for his last couple of years as the D coordinator at Michigan, when he was too stubborn to break out of what he wanted to do. And that cost him big games against teams like Ohio state. I think overall he knows football and he knows defense and he's a great motivator as well. Uh, you hear a lot about a lot of guys saying that they would run through walls for this guy. And I could see that happening and, and good things happening at UMass, but it's going to take some time because, you know, like we talked about with Sully, that is a pro football town and it probably always will be a pro football town, a, a pro sports town. So a school like UMass is really up against it when you come, when it comes to division one college football. Yep. 
All right, well, we're going to take a quick break here. When Wax and I come back, we're going to get to cover four. We're going to talk about some of the top matchups among these independent programs, and then we'll get into our player highlights, players of the year, our Watch Me Player of the Year, and some of our picks and what you can take to the bank. You are listening to the CFP Podcast. We will be right back. Welcome back, college football fans. Again, this is College Football Impact on the CFP Podcast. I am Chappie. That is Wax. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at ChappieCFB. He's at CFFM Waxman. And you can also check out our website, cfpcollegefootball.com. And right today, we're talking independence, FBS independence, the seven programs that are not currently tied to a conference, at least in the 2022 season. And we're right on time for cover four. Cover four. I told you guys, one of my favorites. I love it. There's so much to go into it. So cover four, again, with our conference preview podcasts, we're looking at three top matchups, and then the best home field advantage. So, Wex, changing it up here just a little bit, question one on cover four. Give us your top game for the Notre Dame Fighting Irish. What's the biggest game you see on their schedule um, that they it's, it's a must win for them? Well, when I was breaking down games for the independents for my uh, preseason, Notre Dame had four of the top seven. So, there's any number to choose from. I'm going to choose the opener partly because I'm an Ohio State honk, but partly because there's such a storyline with Marcus Freeman, who used to play for the Buckeyes, bringing his first team and his first game into Columbus. And and it's, it's just a national brand. Game day is now announced they're going to be there for that one. Um, so I think it's going to be Notre Dame and Ohio State. And I also because the loser – will not necessarily be out of any playoff implication because it's a national matchup and it's early enough that if you lose, you can regain your footing. And that's exactly why I took a different game. So I I am picking, like most people are, Notre Dame to drop that game to the Buckeyes, in part because it's at the horseshoe, in part because Ohio State just has an overall more talented team, a better team as I see it right now than Notre Dame. But like you said, Notre Dame can lose that game, as can Ohio State, to that to that point, but um, you know, they, Notre, Notre Dame can lose this game one because it's on the road, and two because it's early, and they can also uh, lose another game. And I'm talking about possibly that Clemson game at uh, Notre Dame Stadium. So, but if they win that one, uh, or if they win the Ohio State game, that puts them at ten and one or nine and two, and until they come into the November 26th matchup at the Coliseum against USC, I think that's a bigger game for Notre Dame because. It's either a game that if they win that one, they get into the college football playoff if they're a one-loss team, or if they're a two-loss team and they beat that USC program, which I think will um, be contending for the CFP this year. I think that they'll be playing in the Pac-12 championship game. That's a win that could put and should put Notre Dame into a New Year's Six Bowl for Marcus Freeman's first full season in South Bend there. So I'm going to go with that game against the Trojans as the bigger game for the Irish not to take anything away from that first matchup against Ohio State. That one's huge. But again, if you're Marcus Freeman in Notre Dame, you're thinking, even if we drop this one, the the one at the end of the season now becomes that much more important because of the fact it could mean that we are playing a New Year's Day or possibly a CFP game. All right, well, let's go to the other prestige program in the independence, if you will, BYU. I'm going to say that their top game 
is going to be September 17th at Oregon going out to Autzen Stadium. So they play Baylor the week before, which is a big game. But I'm, I'm calling that a victory for the Cougars because it's in Provo. So they'll be 2-0 and coming into the Oregon game, presumably. If they win this one, that puts them at 3-0 and with wins over Baylor and Oregon, both teams likely to be ranked at the time that they play them. And even if they don't win the game against Oregon, we're going to learn a lot about this BYU team from this game. If they keep it tight with this Oregon Ducks team, a team that I, again, am calling to um, be highly ranked as they knock off the Georgia Bulldogs and Kirby Smart, who is now a $112 million man. Um, but, you know, that's going to be an important game. So, again, even if BYU drops that one, it still tells us a lot about who they are. If they keep it close against a talented Oregon program, then we're going to know that BYU is going to be a force to reckon with this year. But if they get the doors blown off of them, then maybe we have to stop and rethink, you know, how good is this BYU program? So it's really a measuring stick game for the Cougars, in my opinion. Yeah, and and that was definitely uh, in the consideration for me. Uh, BYU is another one that shows up on my top games list three or four times because they do play a number of really good teams. I mean, they play Boise State, they play Arkansas, they play Notre Dame, the top two independents going against each other. Um, I'm going to go with that Baylor game, partly because it is early enough in the year that we'll still be learning a little about them, but it'll be BYU's first time at home. And these teams have met three times. The home team has won every time. So Baylor is a league champion, and they were this close to getting to the – we're right in contention for the CFP last year. So they will have some name value. And so if BYU beats them, it's not like BYU beat a second level PAC 12 team or a second level big 10 team. They beat a team that was champion of its league last year. And that will count for something. And that could be a springboard into that Oregon game. Or if they lose to Baylor, they could be licking their wounds and that could start a really tough stretch for them. So I think from a momentum standpoint, I think that the Baylor game is very important because win and boom, you could take off nine or 10, but lose, especially because Baylor's physical. And then you got to go the next week to play Oregon. You could really be questioning yourself and maybe the season won't go the way you thought. Yeah. Great points. And yeah, I love that, that aspect of momentum. And that's where, you know, a little side note here, it bothers me when people talk about how a team finishes at the end of the year and you say, okay, so let's, let's just say that Baylor only wins seven games this upcoming season. And people will look back and say, oh, well, that Baylor win wasn't that big. Well, I look at it as, I mean, at the time, Baylor is is likely to be a top 15 ranked team at that point. And there's a lot you've got to get up for mentally and physically to prepare for a team that at the time is ranked that high and is coming off a great season like that. So regardless of how they finish now, if Baylor only won three games this year, even though despite being ranked maybe number 16, 17 at the time they play BYU, then that's different. But it always bothers me when, when people will go back and look at how a team finished, regardless of their schedule, regardless of the factors and injuries and all that stuff and say, Oh, well, you know, this team only beat that team um, who ended up with a seven five record. That wasn't a quality win at the time when they play. I think it does matter when, when a team says, okay, we beat six teams that were ranked at the time, regardless of whether it was um, a miscalculation or not. You and I both know wax that a lot can change from the beginning of the season to the end of the season. And it doesn't necessarily uh, it's not an indictment on a team being quote unquote bad. It could just be, 
uh, misfortune, bad luck, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I agree. And and even though I choose to, when I'm looking at CFP stuff at the end of the year, um, I choose to use the method that, that the committee uses, currently ranked teams, right. uh, for, for if you get credit for a good win. Oh, but sure. good point. At the time of the year, if Baylor and Oregon both fall out of the standings because of, of whatever, yeah. at the time it happened, those will be big victories for BYU. So even though it impacted the other teams negatively, it could have been what springboard, what gave BYU the springboard into having what could be potentially a big season. Yeah, and, and don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I think absolutely you, you look first at how a team finishes. So if it's down between Team B beat a team that is currently ranked 21st in the CFP rankings and BYU did not beat a team that high, then, yeah, you go with Team B. But when you're looking at it and if all things are equal and then you go to, all right, well, who else did they beat? I think there is some merit to say, well, BYU beat a Baylor team that was ranked 15th at the time they played them, whereas Team B, all their other uh, wins over teams who are not currently ranked, they weren't ranked at the time when they played them. They were a, a you know quote-unquote lower quality of opponent at that time. Right. All right, so let's get to number three here. So we've talked about Notre Dame and BYU and great matchups. I mean, you really can't go wrong with any of those four games that we mentioned. But how about the others? So looking at the other five independent schools, what's a game that you are circling and saying, okay, this is going to be important and this will be an entertaining and exciting game to watch as I see it on paper right now? Well, Army has has a few, and they always have an ambitious schedule. Yep. Um, and they actually have a couple of nice G5 matchups with Coastal Carolina and UTSA. Both of those were in the mix. But I want a rematch – of one of the most fun games from last season of going yes, against Wake Forest. That yep. game, you thought Army was dead 15 times. They came back and they scored in a minute and a half, forcing Wake Forest and Sam Hartman to get on their horse again. And ended up, what, like, what, 71 to 55 or something. Nonstop yep. offense. And every time I turn it, okay, Army's down 21, they're dead. Boom, I turn back two minutes later, they're down by a touchdown. So yeah. I want more fun like that. And – the interesting thing to note is that the last time they played in Wake Forest, Army won the game outright 21 to 13. So people thinking that the Deacons with the home field advantage are automatics don't necessarily um, think that, that, that that is the case. Um, yeah. And Wake Forest, by the way, not to cut you off, will be coming off games against Clemson and Florida State. So yes. presumably they're going to spend a lot of their – emotional energy on those two games, key games in the Atlantic division, which, you know, Wake, let's remind everybody, is the reigning Atlantic division champ from last year. So they've got their their division title to defend. And then after that, then they play an Army team who is never an easy out. So, um, yeah, that I had that as my number one game too, Wake. Something else to add? I, I feel like I cut you off. Uh, no, I was, I was just – I didn't know if you wanted me to go through all of the other teams or if you wanted us to interchange – or if you just wanted me to go down my list and then you'll go down your list for the other teams. Yeah, well, we'll kind of ping pong back and forth. So I actually had that as my number one game on October 8th. And yeah, the 56 to 70 loss last year. I mean, anytime a triple option team scores 56 points and loses, you got to tip your hat to their opponent, but more so to a team like Army, who, like you said, they're not built to win shootouts. And no, they didn't win that shootout, but they certainly shot it out with with uh, Wake Forest. Um, I have Army in 
another game that you didn't mention yet, and that's the Commander-in-Chief game against Air Force in Arlington, Texas. Now, this was a game that, you know, was very tight last year. It went to overtime. It will most presumably be for the Commander-in-Chief trophy because I, I put both Army and Air Force as teams that are better than Navy looks this season. Air Force could be ranked at that time, and they're coming off a, a big game, a big Mountain West Conference game against Boise State, and then they have a bye. So we could be looking at a ranked Air Force team, and I don't think Army will be ranked at that point, depending on how they do. Now, if they knock off Wake Forest and Coastal Carolina, then expect the the Black Knights to be you know right around in contention if they're not a 24, 25th ranked team. But then if they beat the Air Force Falcons at that point too, then they damn well better be ranked because they will have beaten a Coastal Carolina team, a Wake Forest team that won 11 games last year, and then an Air Force team. So all three of those teams that I just mentioned were 10-plus game winners a season ago. And if Army beats all three, if if they're not ranked, then uh, I might have to uh, march out to the Associated Press myself and start banging doors down. Well, and, and UTSA was a double-digit win last year, too. So Exactly. Yep. Yeah, so not to slight the Roadrunners. So uh, so what, what's another game that you see on the slate of independence that jumps out as a pretty important game? Um, moving on to Liberty, I really like just because um, it's an in-state battle late in the year. We'll know a little bit more about Liberty, but we'll also know a little bit about uh, Brent Pry's first Virginia Tech team. They play November the 19th, and um, Liberty has has won once, but they've covered both of the games. Um, and if you recall, it wasn't that long ago, pandemic year 2020, that Liberty was ranked uh, for the first time ever as an FBS team, and they won, I think, on the last play of the game on a field goal. So whenever you got in-state rivals playing, um, I think that – you can really it, it really adds something to the equation and Hugh Freeze is is a veteran of big games anyway so right. I think he's gonna help those guys convinced hey you you can beat these guys and the games at home yeah and outside of that season though Liberty has not done well against power five schools under Hugh Hugh Freeze so this would uh, be a chance for him to I think he's two and six against power five competition. So this would be a chance to kind of bring his name um, in even more prominence than many feel it already is. So yeah, I like that one, especially from the rematch standpoint. And and you've got to think that the Virginia Tech players who are still on that roster from a couple years ago, they're just itching to prove that they're not a, uh, they're not a school. They're not a program that can lose twice to a, a, a relatively new FBS program like Liberty. Sticking with Liberty, I'm going to go with their October 22nd matchup against BYU, mainly because Liberty should be five and two, maybe even six and one at that point. BYU, we talked about how how potentially good they could be. I mean, this could be a, a matchup of two one loss teams, um, and we'll really find out the winner of this one should emerge as really the the second best of all the independents because of the fact that they'll have a chance to prove it on the field. But also at that point, you're looking at potentially a seven and one football team, whether it's Liberty or whether it's BYU, I'm picking the Cougars in this one as of right now, but I think that that one has some, some big rest of the season implications and will certainly springboard the confidence for players on, on either squad. Yeah, I, I would, uh, I would tend to agree. And there, there are some opportunities for Liberty to, 
kind of steal some wins and have a nice gaudy record going into that game. All right, Wax. So number four on cover four here, we, we always end with best home field advantage. So we'll do this in two parts, Notre Dame or BYU. And then among the other five, what do you consider to be the best home field advantage for those programs? I think, well, I've, I've been to a game at Notre Dame and I've seen the stadium at BYU. So I don't know that it's really a fair comparison. Right. Um, I will say Notre Dame, their fan base is painted as skewing a little bit older, spewing, skewing a little bit more traditional. So you always hear that the places that are really rowdy are the places with the younger, the college kids, the, the 20s and early 30s. So when Ohio State came there, there were some moments that Notre Dame Stadium got loud, but I think it is more of a home field advantage just because of its tradition with Touchdown Jesus looking right over the stadium and all of the great games and great players that have played there. But every time I see BYU on TV against a marquee opponent, that place sounds like it is really, really loud. So from a yeah. noise advantage, I would act, I would probably give BYU the edge and seeing the stadium from the outside, I want to go back and see a game in there. Yeah. And, and that's a good point. I, I fully agree that from a, a rowdiness and a raucous standpoint, I would go with BYU. I was fortunate enough to go to a Notre Dame game for the first time last year and the stadium, the campus, everything is beautiful. I mean, you are just uh, awestruck when you're there, but in terms of, yeah, the, the fan atmosphere, I, I can, I can probably name about, 10 other stadiums that seem to be more boisterous and uh, rocking. So, but Notre Dame since 2015, they're 39 and six. So they win games there. And since 2017, they've knocked off seven ranked opponents. And I think they've only lost two games there against ranked competition. And one of those wins was against number one Clemson back in 2020. And they'll have the Tigers there again this season. So that'll be interesting. So yeah, I'm going to go Notre Dame, um, when push comes to shove, but I would love to see BYU in person and experience that raucous atmosphere firsthand. Now, what about the other uh, schools? Who do you give the best home field advantage to? Well, I mean, we've touched on it before. UMass and UConn are kind of located in pro sports um, hubs, so it's not going to be either of them. New Mexico State, you have to applaud the fans that do show up with the way that they've played lately, yeah. but I don't intimidating for anybody um liberty again they had the great season but i don't think of them as just a real intimidating place to play so just from again a tradition standpoint and the fact that if you go back just um four years you're looking at a team that has lost three times at home and that is army um they're not afraid to take on big name opponents at home um you've got the reverence with the um, with with the uh, cadets in this in the stadium, but yeah. you have just enough of a smattering of people from the area that it can get loud when there's maybe a game-winning drive or something coming up. So, I think almost by default you have to give the nod of the others to Mikey Stadium, and ju just the scenery alone would put it in contention if the others were good. Oh, hands down, even even with Notre Dame. Uh, from the things that I've seen, and I would love to go there in person, I, I would put Army as the most beautiful uh, stadium, all things considered, among all these seven independent schools. So I, I agree with you from a standpoint of, like, I mean, seeing the cadets 
go crazy in the stands and seeing basically like half the stadium filled with cadets. It's so cool. And, and they do get a, a good home field crowd there at Mike stadium, but from a win loss standpoint, Liberty is 20 and four at home at Williams stadium since 2015. Hugh freeze is 15 and three there. But the, the big thing that kind of makes me throw my hands up is they haven't beaten a power five team at home. Now, part of that's not all their fault. There's a lot of power five schools that are just not wanting to travel to Lynchburg, Virginia and play in a 40,000-seat stadium, they'd rather cut a paycheck and bring Liberty to their stadium and um, play in front of a bigger crowd. Um, Army, like you said, only three losses uh, since 2017, I think you said, but they beat Duke, a Power 5 program. So um, I'm going to put those two up there, but I am going to give the nod to Army as you know, the tiebreaker being the the atmosphere and the, the the fan involvement there. Although you know Hugh Freeze is definitely bringing in quite the following to Lynchburg, Virginia, and those fans are sure as hell hoping that he stays there for a little bit longer. And and you know just one more year, Hugh, one more year, Coach Freeze. That's what they keep yep. begging for. All right, well let's get to our final segment, and that is our pick segment here on the CFP podcast. You So Wax and I, as we've done for the Power Five conferences, we're going to give you our picks for offensive and defensive players of the year, our Watch Me player, and our most intriguing team. And then we'll end with giving you the DraftKings win totals for all seven independent schools and whether Wax and I think it's a lock that they go over or under. So Wax, let's start on the offensive side of the ball because that's what everybody thinks is sexy. Not everybody, but most people, I guess I should say. Um, offensive player of the year, who are you awarding it to among these independent football teams? Um, the, looking at the rosters for the independents, the one glaring, the thing that's noticeably glaring that's missing are really, really impactful offensive players. This is a defensive uh, conglomeration of teams, and as such, this was a pretty easy pick. I think Jaron Hall of BYU is going to be the offensive player of the year. Um, many of the other teams are breaking in new quarterbacks, or if it's if they're not breaking them in, it's a second-year quarterback who, who is in a system that is not putting up big numbers. Um, there aren't a whole lot of other real contenders. Maybe one of the BYU receivers, maybe Michael uh, Mayer at Notre Dame, but again, that's a new quarterback, and I don't know that Notre Dame's going to throw a ton. Maybe a sleeper like a Tyrell Robinson from Army because they are going to run a ton, but a running back doesn't typically win this award. So I think Jaron Hall, kind of by default and by his own talent, is going to be the Offensive Player of the Year. Yeah, I had him as well, and I kind of broke this into two categories. So I put it, who would I choose between Notre Dame and BYU, and then who would I take among the rest of the field? So, yeah, I have Jaron Hall as my Offensive Player of the Year, 64% completion percentage, 2,500 yards, a 20 to five touchdown interception ratio. And he played in only 10 games last year. So there were three games that he missed with injury. He's also their number two rusher from a year ago, uh, 300 yards on the ground, five yards per carry, three rushing touchdowns. So he's a dual threat guy, a true dual threat guy. I feel like um, everybody is dubbed as a dual threat quarterback, but Jaron Hall, I think really fits that description. Uh, Michael Mayer is an outstanding tight end. And he's, you know, he's only been there for two years and he's just 15 receptions away from being the all-time leading receiver in Notre Dame football history among tight ends. I mean, 
you you look at all the the great players they've had there, the NFL tight ends that they've had. That's saying something, and he's only done it in. I mean, he'll break that record probably in week three uh, of this season. So, um, but honorable mention though to the the field, Tyrell Robinson. He's a guy who I would say he's my favorite player on the offensive side to watch. No disrespect to Jaron Hall for BYU, but Robinson. 8.5 yards per carry, and he carried it 72 times. So it's not like he's got an 8.5 uh, rack when he only carried it, you know, 12, 15 times. Sometimes, you know, you'll see those numbers jump out and they don't get filtered out by the, the analytics. Uh, and you realize, okay, well, this guy only carried the ball 20 times, but 72 carries, and he's averaging almost the first down every time he touches it. Three touchdowns rushing. I'm kind of hoping that that number jumps up even higher this year. But he's also a very good kick returner, and he's a pretty good receiver out of the backfield, too. Just an electrifying player. I was uh, disappointed when I saw that he went into the transfer portal, he and Isaiah Alston, the receiver from Army. But both guys decided to stay in West Point, so I applaud them, and I applaud their uh, services, both as football players but more so as, as men in the military. So they'll be fun to watch this year. And then um, also can't let – our UMass fans go without hearing Ellis Merriweather's name. 5.2 yards per carry, five rushing touchdowns. That number needs to increase. But then again, his offense needs to support him um, in front and around him. But he also had 22 receptions for 7.5, a catch and a touchdown haul through the air. So Ellis Merriweather is a guy that um, should give UMass fans some things to cheer for on offense. Yeah, he, he and uh, Robinson are my uh, first team offense running back. So um, – he doesn't get a lot of publicity, but you're right. Ellis Merriweather could play on a lot of other teams. And he's a big dude, too. So it's yep. not like he's this little scat back that uh, is ripping these numbers off against Colgate and a bunch of other FCS schools um, and then UConn and New Mexico State, no, no disrespect. But, um, yeah, he's, he's, he's got the load to carry with him. All right, Defensive Player of the Year, Wax. I'm going to let you go first here, and I'm going to take the, the opposite guy that you don't take. Well, this one was a little bit tougher because there are guys at all three levels that could really get this. I mean, I love Andre Carter, a linebacker for Army. I think he's outstanding. Um, I think Brandon Joseph at Notre Dame is really good. I think that uh, Javon Scruggs at Liberty is a really good defensive back. Yes. Um, and, and my runner-up was probably Trayshawn Clark from Liberty who is yep. a great uh, defensive lineman, but I'm going to give it to Isaiah Foskey of Notre Dame because I just think that he is going to be a guy who creates a ton of havoc this year. Notre Dame is putting in a couple of new pieces on their defensive front, but he's a guy who just when, when the whistle blows, you know that he is coming after you and he has been uber, uber productive I mean, he had 52 tackles last year, 38 of them were solos, and he had seven hurries. He forced six fumbles, which you don't normally – I mean, defensive ends, you're hopeful for the strip sack and the fumble and all that stuff. Right. He's the guy who actually follows through on it. Twelve and a half tackles for loss, 11 sacks. He's kind of going to be a marked guy, but there's just enough talent inside with Jason Adamalola that teams aren't going to be able to just – only double team Foskey because there are other guys who can make plays. So um, Isaiah Foskey is going to kind of be a man among boys this year. And I think that he's going to be your defensive player of the year. Yeah. And I chose him as my defensive player of the year as well. I mean, you look at 
even his numbers from 2020, um, you know, he's improved in every category. He had four and a half sacks as a reserve D, D end in 2020, five tackles for loss and five quarterback hurries. So last year, this was most impressive to me. And, and he's really, you know, we've talked about he's a linebacker playing defensive end or rush, uh, whatever you want to call it. 52 tackles, but 38 of them were solo stops. So only 14 of his tackles did he need help from his teammates. I mean, he's a guy that is just a, a presence out there. 11 sacks, like you mentioned, um, 12 and a half total tackles for loss, seven quarterback hurries, the, the pressures that you talked about, the, the fumbles forced. Uh, he's just a dude. And he's tutored by Al Washington, a very respected defensive line coach for the Notre Dame Fighting Irish. Uh, I'm anxious to see what new D coordinator Al Golden does. If, if his scheme can actually boost Foskey's performance. Uh, but if not, you know, my, my alternative would have been Brandon Joseph. I, and this is not because I'm a Northwestern guy, but I think Notre Dame secondary is, is going to be better than a lot of people are expecting. Some people are saying that that's going to be the weakness of that defense. I actually look at it as a strength. Um, Bracy and Hart at the corners, um, uh, Clarence Lewis as well. You have Houston Griffith at one of the safeties. Uh, they've, they've gotten depth there established this spring when we talked to Tim Priester. So Brandon Joseph is a guy who's averaged 70 tackles in his first two years at Northwestern per season. Five interceptions he's averaging per season. Um, he's, a, he's a cerebral guy. He's a leader. And he's, he's a fourth-year player. So, you know, he's only a junior in eligibility, but he redshirted his uh, first year at, at Northwestern. So, you know, he's, he's been tutored by some great defensive coaches, both at Northwestern and now at Notre Dame. And so, you know, he's another guy, I think with the players in front of him and around him, he could be a prime candidate. A lot of people are saying, well, you can't replace Kyle Hamilton. Brandon Joseph is going to come really, really close. He's not got the same size, but certainly from a production standpoint, Joseph is a guy that um, you can set your watch to on defense. Yes. And, and I agree with you. Andre Carter is my pick from the field, so to speak. Um, 15 and a half sacks last year. The only college football player who had more was Will Anderson. So that's almost not fair to Andre Carter because Will Anderson is just a, a freak among men. Um, but he also had three tackles for loss and 44 tackles. 33 of those were solo. So 75% of his tackles last year were of the solo variety. That's something that you see from cornerbacks or safety sometimes, not necessarily from, from linebackers. So the, the guy can play football. And Army is a team that doesn't blitz a ton either. So he's just right. getting that based on his knowledge of where the ball is going to go and yep. just getting there in a bad mood. Yep. Read, react, take your read steps, and attack the ball when you see the ball. Right. Uh, all right. Watch me, player Wax. I'm going to start with this one. And I'm going to go with the guy who was injured last year. And he's had some, um, some string of things in his time at BYU. But I think if he puts it all together, I saw some great flashes of a great football player and that's Chaz Ayu. So he's 6'2", 206 pounds, so good size for a safety. He's a very good tackler in open space. He's aggressive around the line of scrimmage. He's also good over the top, a pretty good pass defender. Um, he's got a very high uh, football IQ. He's an Eagle Scout, which, you know, for those who don't know, I mean, it takes a lot. There's a lot of time and precision put into being an Eagle Scout within the realm of the, the Scouts of America. So for him to have that honor, that's not just something that anybody gets. It's not a participation ribbon. It's something that truly you have to go above and beyond, and it shows your willingness to adapt, your your ability to um, 
make things out of nothing, so to speak. And, and Chaz IU is a guy that, um, you know, I think by season's end, we could be looking at a, um, a player who is all conference caliber, even though the, the independence outside of Phil Steele doesn't award um, an all conference team. But, you know, if, if this were the big 12, he would be a guy that I think could earn big 12 type honors. Yeah. Um, he certainly, and there's, there's a number of candidates for BYU. I mean, I, I like him. I like uh, another injured guy, Peyton Wilgar, a linebacker. Yeah. I think that he's got a chance to be really good. Um, a guy up front for BYU, Tyler Batty. So you've got guys, especially on that BYU team, which was just decimated by injuries last season. Any number of those guys could really rebound and really show that last year's BYU defense was kind of an anomaly because they've been good in the years leading up to last year. So I am also on the defensive side of the ball, um, not getting a ton of love, probably because he plays for the UConn Huskies, but linebacker Kevin Jones is a guy who really bears watching. He played more defensive end last year, but he's transitioned into linebacker. He's 6'2", about 250. He had seven and a half tackles for loss, 11 hurries, which means he was just a step slow in getting there for another sack. So that's basically disrupting the quarterback 18 and a half times. He also is rangy enough that he is able to break up four passes. So Kevin Jones is a guy who I know that Jim Mora is going to try to get some things going for the UConn defense, which has not been very good the last few years. But Kevin Jones is a guy who you can kind of hang your hat on. He's uh, played a lot. He started in 19, and he played in nine games in 2018. And that year, when he was a freshman, he had 52 tackles. So he really hit the ground running and has just been kind of an impact player for them. And I think it's because he plays at UConn that he doesn't get a lot of publicity, but he's a guy worth watching. Yeah, and remember, ladies and gentlemen, we're talking about our Watch Me players. So those of you UConn Husky fans who are throwing up your arms and saying, what about Jackson Mitchell? Uh, Mr. Waxman has put him on the all-independent um, team, you know, within the first two teams. So uh, we know about Jackson Mitchell. We know he had 120 tackles last year. So uh, we get it. <laughs> um, yeah, another guy, speaking of UConn, that a lot of people don't know about is their kick returner, Brian Bruton. So he had not one but two kick returns to the house a season ago, averaged 30 yards per kick return on just under 30 runbacks. So, it's again, it's not like it's a it's a small sample size where it's like, okay, yeah, he's averaging 30, but he only returned six kicks. Um, he was their regular kick returner and, um, you know, as a, as a youngster, was lighting up special teams for the UConn Huskies last year. So he's another guy to watch out for uh, when you're looking at the, the rest of the field. Yep. All right, last one here, Wax, our, our most intriguing team, and then we'll quickly go through our DraftKings picks. So real quickly, who is the most intriguing team among these seven independents for you? I'm just really intrigued by the three teams, the three lower teams that have new coaches, all because they have had a reputation or a name at other places. Jerry Kill, as you mentioned, um, has did, did things at Minnesota, um, and Jim Mora uh, was at UCLA. And then, of course, Don Brown was a longtime coordinator for Michigan. You, you, you keep hearing that Mora and Brown especially are getting the recruiting machines going, that people are buying in. And Kill has just turned every 
place he's been, he's turned around. So uh, those three teams intrigue me just to see if you see something tangible this season. You're, they're not going to contend for being in the top four, but if they're losing by a touchdown instead of getting blown out by 20, then you can see that these coaches are having an immediate impact. Yeah. Um, I like your reasoning for that. I'm going to go with Liberty. So they've averaged nine wins and Hugh Freeze's three seasons there in Lynchburg. So my questions are how much of a drop off is there going to be after Malik Willis is gone? Will the offensive line get better in pass protection? Because they were not very good last year and Malik Willis, the athlete that he was kind of bailed them out uh, quite often. If Charlie Brewer is a quarterback, you're not going to see that. Um, and so that offensive line has to get better. Will the defense rebuild and reset after the loss of D coordinator Scott Simons, who went to join SMU staff? So they're, they're having a tag team group of co-D coordinators. And then will they fare better against power five opposition? That, those are my big questions for Liberty. So I have them at 75. I wouldn't be shocked to see them win eight games, but I also could see them struggling maybe even to make a bowl this year if those questions are not answered. All right, Wax, so uh, we've got about two minutes left here. Let's go uh, with our DraftKings numbers. So I'll run them down real quick, is, and let me know if there's a, a solid over or under pick here. So BYU and Notre Dame both set at 8.5, Army at 8 wins, Liberty at 6.5, New Mexico State at 3, UMass and UConn both at 2.5. So um, some fairly low numbers there for about half the teams. Are there any locks going over or under in your eyes, Wax? I don't know if it's a lock, but I think if you look at New Mexico State's schedule, they can get more than three wins. They play Lamar, which is an FCS team who they should be able to get. They play UMass, even though it's on the road. Those are two teams that haven't been great. They play New Mexico, which is a traditional rival and is typically close. They also get Hawaii and FIU, who are two of the lower lights in their league. So they have five opportunities for wins. I would think they could get three, maybe even four there. So I'm going to hedge a little bit and say New Mexico State gets over the three. And I think Notre Dame and BYU are both locks for going uh, over the eight and a half. Um, if I had to take an under, I think you, you touched on it. I'm not sure Liberty gets to – they would have to get to seven. I don't know that they will. Yeah, I think for me, my lock is going to be Army. I feel most confident that they're going to get at least nine wins this year. They could steal another one. Um, I mean, they have a they have a challenging schedule, but they could use that to their advantage. Uh, I do see that BYU and Notre Dame should get to nine wins. I feel more confident about Notre Dame getting to nine. So I would take those as overs, but I'm going to lock Army over eight. And then I don't know that I feel greatly comfortable about any um, unders. But if I'm going to go under, I'm going to say New Mexico State under three. I only see him winning two games this year. And, you know, it's Jerry Kill's a good coach, but I, I think that he's got the biggest uphill climb of those three schools, New Mexico State, UMass, and UConn. So if I have to pick an under, and I'm not locking this, but if I have to go under, I'm taking New Mexico State under three. So, Wax, it's been a good one again, man. Once again, this has been the CFI on the CFP podcast. Follow us on Twitter. And visit our website, www.cfpcollegefootball.com, where you'll get great knowledge of college football from the experts. For Wax, I'm Chappie. Thanks for having us do what we do and love to do. And all we ask is to keep listening and spread the word. Have a happy day.